This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Broadcast Church Planting podcast. Today we're going back in our archive to January of 2015 for one of our theology training hangouts. In this hangout we were joined by Matthew Hosier who is talking to us about the Trinity and the implications of the Trinity for our Christian lives. You can find this full hangout including a Q&A with Matthew and all the notes on everything that he said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org/episode20. So here's Matthew Hosier interested in union. So think about Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate word we see in Jesus we see God taking on human flesh, we see God and man united. Colin Barron has been muted on this, which is always good to mute Colin Barron. Um, we see the union of Christ with his church, that Christ joins us to himself. When we take bread and wine, that is an, an enactment of Christ and the church joining together. And it anticipates the great eschatological feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of the ages, when we will be joined with Christ and we shall celebrate within, with him. Now, if we are joined to Christ, if we're united with Christ, uh, uh, theologically speaking, scripturally speaking, I believe, that is an indivisible union. It's a union that cannot be broken. Um, obviously, there's a huge debate in the church about whether you can lose your salvation. I think it's more helpful to think in terms of union with Christ and what that means. Uh, and, and the way that the, the logic of the argument flows is that Christ is indivisibly united to the Father, because although they, the Trinity is three, the Trinity is also one. And if we have been united with Christ, we are also joined to God in a similar way, and that is an unbreakable bond. And um, this explains why union is really important to God. It explains why some of the things that God does have real weight. So when God makes a covenant, when God makes a promise, it really matters because God is about making unbreakable unions. It's, this is why God hates divorce, because the covenant of marriage is meant to be unbreakable because it's meant to in some way reflect God himself in, his, in the union he knows within himself. Um, I think about some of the promises that are ours in terms of what union with, with God is going to look like. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. We get to participate in God himself. Well, 1 John 3, 1 to 2, which is one of my favorite verses of scripture. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be like has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We can participate in God, says we're going to be like 
Jesus. And so really when we think about what is a human, that fundamental question, what, what is a human being? A human is someone who in principle can be in communion with God, can be in union with God, actually in some way can be like God. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and subsequently on the church through the ages, we see God indwelling countless human persons and drawing them to himself. God makes us what we're meant to be. To be fully human is to be in communion with God. John Calvin said, the purpose of the gospel is to make us sooner or later like God. And that's an amazing claim that we will become like God, sooner or later to be like God. Now that will happen fully on uh, the resurrection day when our unity with Christ will be fully seen and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. But it has big implications for how we think about one another and how we think about ourselves now. What is a human being? A human being is someone who can be in communion with God. A human being is someone who can actually be like God. And that must affect the way that we view other people, the kind of dignity with which which we give to other people. When we look at somebody else, that person, however much we might dislike them or they might irritate us or whatever issues they might have, that person has the potential to be like God because God makes union with human beings. Now, In God, we see unity with diversity perfected. There's perfect unity because God is one, but there's also perfect diversity because God is three persons. There's perfect unity of thought and purpose. God is in no way schizophrenic. The Father and the Son never disagree. The Spirit doesn't ever get fed up and go off and huff and slam a bedroom door and say, I'm not talking to you tonight. There's a perfect coexistence of perfect unity and that unity and that diversity is a model for us in our human relationships about how we're to live so let's think about some practical examples of that first one is to think about marriage which is probably the closest human equivalent to the unity and diversity we is we see in god so Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. There's a a joining that is meant to happen between a man and a woman in marriage. It's a genuine physical joining and a genuine spiritual joining. Now, the two husband and wife remain distinct people, different roles, different personalities, but they also genuinely in some way one. And that means that couples in marriage are actually meant to grow closer not apart. And uh, probably in our society today, there's a general assumption that the longer you're with somebody, the further apart you grow. You start with a great burst of romance and enjoyment and love and all the rest. And over time, you kind of grow apart. And often there's a time where that growing apart means that you you literally separate. But uh, a Christian understanding of marriage is see, actually it's meant to be a growing closer together, a unity which increases and so now I can think of Christian couples who've been married for a long, long time, and they, although they remain distinct in their personalities and their roles and their gifts and, and so on, there's also an increasing closeness, and that can be reflected in how they, sometimes how they look. They start to look more like, like each other, and they anticipate one another's moves and words and actions, uh, and there's a nearness about them. Now, 
Uh, within marriage, then, of course, there's a huge issues that's again been much debated about the role of men and women and husband and wife. Um, and this tricky phrase is often used about men and women being equal but different. And that throws up all kinds of issues for us because in our context, where we are, 21st century Western society, we take equal to mean being equal. And equal means it means equal. It means the same. It means the same opportunities. It means the same rights. It means the same roles. You get to do the same thing. That's what equality is. And so when theologians try and talk about equal but different, it just doesn't make much sense in our ears. But I think we see equality with difference in God himself and that is then to be reflected in some way in our relationships, including within marriage. So we can, we can see how the Trinity operates as a team. So the Father initiates the salvation of the human race, but it's the Son who comes to save us. And sometimes there's, there's a debate about whether uh, the, the, kind of the, the names and the roles of Father, Son, and Spirit are just interchangeable. Uh, but that just doesn't hold together because the Son, by definition, is the Son. He's only the Son because the Father is the Father. And so it had to be the Son uh, who came to save us because, by definition, that's uh, who he is. The Son came to save us, and then the Spirit applies the benefits of salvation to us. The Spirit indwells us and empowers us. And Jesus and the Spirit are in no way demeaned by the fact there is this uh, apparent leadership within the Trinity of the Father. It doesn't make them any less God. The, the Son and the Spirit are fully God as well. Um, and there seems to be a delight, a mutual delight within God himself in the way that he expresses himself in the three persons of the Trinity. So the the, the uh, key verse in this and thinking about marriage, and probably one that you've argued about before, is 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 where Paul writes, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And there's been lots of debates and arguments about what head actually means um, because uh, it can sound oppressive to the ears of some and, and that kind of thing. But I think what we can see there is that Christ isn't demeaned by the father being described as his head, his leader in some way, and that a man isn't demeaned by saying that Jesus is his head, and equally a woman is not to be demeaned by saying that a man is her head. So in my marriage, there's no distinction of worth or value between myself and Grace, um, but Grace chooses to willingly submit herself to me in aspects of our marriage. That means that I lead our marriage, and I'm answerable to God uh, before God for it, uh, but we're both free to pursue the specific callings God has given us. Um, doesn't mean that I'm in any way to dominate or oppress my wife, but there's a, there's a leadership responsibility and authority that I have within our marriage. Now, of course, in a, because of sinfulness, that can easily be corrupted into something which is oppressive and which is destructive. But the fact that it can be oppressive and destructive does not mean that the uh, the, the distinction is wrong. It simply means that sin gets in and messes it up. Uh, we, we see this diversity unity then flowing out in family life in terms of children, that children come from both the father and the mother, uh, but they're subject to, and they're subject to the authority of both. And in a similar way, the son, uh, the spirit, sorry, proceeds from the father by the son, and the spirit is in some way subject to the authority of the father and the son, 
but without being diminished in his own status as God. And so we see within this notion of Trinitarian theology, this, this unity, the perfect oneness, perfect commonality, commonality of purpose and desire and joy and love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also distinctions between the three persons of the Trinity. And it has these kind of practical implications for family life. Also has practical implications for how we do church. So in the local church, there should be something of the unity of God, which is reflected that we're to be united in love, in purpose, and in our mission together. And sometimes we can push against that. Certainly I know I've experienced people pushing against that. And uh, people say things like we, we it's just, uh, we're getting into group think and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, we have to watch out for that kind of um, force, again, oppressive um, uniformity. We're not looking for uniformity, but there should be a unity amongst us, a unity of love, a unity of purpose, a unity of mission, just as there is in the Trinity. But there also needs to be a real diversity, different gifts, different backgrounds, different races, all coming together to enjoy Jesus. And uh, that then must inform and affect authority structures within the church. Authority within the church, spiritual authority really does exist, that God gives it to the church. Leadership is a gift in the church, but it's an authority which isn't meant to be oppressive or coercive or manipulative. It's it's an authority which actually exists to uh, uh, equip and build up the church and which must flow out from our understanding of the Trinity. As soon as leadership in the church becomes manipulative or coercive or oppressive, that isn't Trinitarian leadership, that's uh, that's demonic leadership. And so in church life, we look for the kind of order and unity there is in the Trinity, but also the kind of diversity and freedom there is in the Trinity that ought to affect how our local congregations look. Um, also needs to affect how we think about the universal church, the church around the world, all of God's people, that there, as it says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus, that God is calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's incredible diversity in his church. Um, as it says in Revelation 5.9, with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Um, but God is calling us together into one united family and on that day when we stand before him there will be no division between us there will be perfect unity all God's people from every corner of the earth united together but with incredible diversity reflected together and so when we think about the church we need to think about the church within these trinitarian parameters and expectations and then that also begins to affect how we think about wider society so it affects how I think about my family, it affects how I think about the church, also think, affects how I think about society at large, because society at large works best when there's unity and diversity. And you can see that in all kinds of things. You can see it in, in something like sports. So for a, a, a sports team to be successful, there has to be authority. The team needs to listen to the coach. The team needs to follow the game plan. There also needs to be diversity. Uh, in a football team, a goalkeeper and a striker have different skills. You've got to have that diversity in the team. And there also needs to be unity. The whole team needs to cooperate and play to win together. And uh, when a sports team does that, it's actually kind of functioning in a Trinitarian way. When there's that kind of authority and diversity and unity, that's a Trinitarian model. Um, in the workplace, we should look for a similar kind of model and Imagine how transformed the workplace would be if people really did 
base their relationships uh, upon Trinitarian theology. If there was authority which was willingly embraced rather than forcibly imposed or chafed under, if there was a real embracing of every employee's unique and diverse gifts and abilities, if there wasn't any gossip, if there wasn't any backstabbing, but if there was a real purposeful working together for a common end, and if that was all happening because people loved each other rather than because of company policy or because it affected their paycheck, our workplaces would be radically different places. And what scripture leads us to, whether a Christian story goes to, is that that's how it will be. That uh, in eternity there will be work to do, but it will be work to do which will be work where everyone's gift is fully utilized, employed, enjoyed, where there is real harmony of working together, where there's incredible commonality of purpose. That, that's what the new creation will be like. It'll be a place of, of incredible diversity and incredible order and incredible satisfaction. Nobody will end the uh, the day, as it were, frustrated and fed up. Um, everybody will uh, delight in what they're doing because it will somehow reflect the work of God in its diversity and its unity. So understanding something about the Trinity affects family life, it affects church life, it affects how we think about wider society, it affects how we think about the whole world. So in thinking about uh, the creation, how the, how, why the world is as it is, what the world is like. Um, Trinitarian theology is, is rooted in love because God is love, is in his threeness. Um, and that means that uh, we're not just, uh, uh, life isn't just about fate. As Christians, we can't be fatalistic because fate isn't derived from love. Fate is, fate is very different from love. Um, Trinitarian theology is also very different from deism. Deism is an idea that there is a God, but somehow remote, impersonal. No, we believe in a God who is close and personal because he is this Trinitarian, communitarian being. And Trinitarian theology is a much more satisfying way to understand the world than Darwinism that says which uh, the creation exists simply by chance and random mutation. No, there's a purposefulness about the world created by a loving God. And, and really science should draw us into Trinitarian theology because the more we understand about the world, the more we see the incredible unity, the harmony of ecosystems, how things are designed to work together, the, the world works. Um, there's a unity about it, but it's the unity of incredible diversity, the, the remarkable diversity of millions of creatures, of, of, the, of, the, of plant life, of uh, the complexity of ecosystems. And that unity and diversity of the world does reflect a Trinitarian God. And there are aspects of uh, modernism, the world in which we live which keep us from appreciating the natural world and so i would argue actually keep us from worship so i think we're meant to be led to worship by the creation if you see a sunset you're meant to worship if you see a, a murmuration of starlings if it's when you get one of those big flocks of starlings and they whirl around in amazing shapes you're meant to worship if you ever look into a beehive you're meant to worship if you look at the sunset if you look at a murmuration of starlings if you look at a beehive there's incredible complexity, incredible diversity, but also incredible unity and sense of purpose. And um, our modern world keeps us from those things. 
climate control and electronic lights and uh, staring into computer screens as we're doing now, I think actually can function demonically in that those things can keep us from seeing the complexity and the unity of the world that God has made. And the creation is meant to point us to the creator, to God. We also see that worked out in, in the creative activities in which we get caught up. Uh, now, music is a great example of this. And I've certainly seen one uh, Trinitarian theologian argue that the Western tradition of music very much reflects a Trinitarian understanding. So the, the Western tradition of music, if you're thinking about uh, classical music, particularly with its complexity, but its unity, uh, has an ordered progress and purpose, is a kind of very Trinitarian model. Uh, if, you, um, if you ever go and see a symphony orchestra, there's an incredible diversity of instrumentation, but you hear the whole thing together and it has a great unity about it. And that's a very Trinitarian kind of shape. And I think all these things mean that the Christian should not be indifferent about the earth, that the earth is not going to be destroyed, it's going to be renewed. And the earth creation speaks about God, it reflects God in some way. It's a, it's a picture that is meant to draw us to God the sunset, the murmuration of starlings, the beehive, music, point us to God in their complexity and their unity. So family life, church life, wider society, how we understand creation, all affected by seeing God as one but three. There are then also significant implications for mission. And I think, broadly speaking, there are probably two great challenges for us in the world today in terms of mission. First one is Islam, and the second one is postmodernism. And both Islam and postmodernism, their fundamental root problems is that they are not Trinitarian. That's fundamentally what is wrong with both of those worldviews. So think about Islam first. In Islam, Islam celebrates unity, but without diversity. Um, and in many ways, Islam is, is it's a Judeo-Christian kind of aberration. It's, a, it's, it's almost a, 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 it's kind of a Christian sect almost. Um, but it understands some things about God, but then gets some things absolutely terribly wrong. And the first thing that Islam gets wrong is seeing Allah as a solitary monad, as unity only, unity without diversity. Uh, and of course, Islam in its name, which means submission, is based on the notion of power and of will. And there's not much space for love in that model of God. Um, Matt Partridge, who leads um, Catholic Church in, in Oxford, I guess lots of you know him, he was talking to me last year about a friend of his who was a Muslim and came to faith, an academic at Oxford. And uh, this friend apparently said, Islam is a religion of thuggery. There is no way for the human to get to Allah. And the reason he said that when he'd come to faith in Christ was he saw that the issue with Allah is that Allah is a oneness, and a, a oneness cannot love, because love has to be expressed to the other. And if Allah is only one, how can he really love? And if Allah cannot really love, then how can human beings get into a relationship of love with Allah? And so this ex-Muslim described Islam as a religion of thuggery. And I think you, you can see that, and, and um, this point could be stretched to breaking point, but you, you see the, the, the problem with Islam in Islamic political systems, lots of the issues we're dealing with in the world at the moment. So within Islam, it is difficult to recognize diversity because 
it views Allah as a monad, as a as a one rather than as a trinity. And so democracy struggles in Islamic societies. It seems difficult to get democracy working effectively in Islamic societies. And really that's not surprising because in the Islamic worldview, there is no separation between the state, between government and what we would call the church, religious bodies and structures. They're both identical. It's one thing. There has to be a unity because a oneness because Allah is a oneness. has this incredible diversity with unity. Islamic music, by contrast, is not polyphonic. It's much more monophonic, um, which um, reflects uh, Allah as a oneness. So Islam has unity but lacks diversity. And so I think the challenge of Islam for us is not only some of the cultural issues we deal with in, in the UK today or not about extremism. The, the fundamental problem with Islam is that it doesn't really explain what a human being is. You can only really know what a human being is by understanding who God is and God is Trinity and understanding God in relationship, God in love, the outflow of God's love being worked in creation, that unity and diversity. That, without understanding that, you can't really understand what a human is. And so if we're thinking about how do we reach, to, reach out to Muslims, we have to deal with that whole question of what is a human? How do you, you experience love? Where does love come from? Where, where's that generated from? You're, all those kind of questions which really don't make much sense within an Islamic framework. The uh, second big challenge for us in terms of mission is postmodernism. And postmodernism celebrates diversity without unity. So Islam celebrates unity but struggles with diversity. Postmodernism celebrates diversity but struggles with unity. Uh, and we tend to talk about diversity a lot. We talk about tolerance, and but we're not so good at unity. And in a British context, that was perhaps illustrated. It's illustrated by the fact that the whole notion of the United Kingdom, what is that? It's kind of fracturing, breaking up, potentially Scotland going off, other groups potentially going off. But ironically, um, the, the result of diversity as it's promoted in our postmodern context actually often is an incredible uniformity that uh, people end up actually with very uniform ways of thinking in our supposedly diverse culture. Uh, so, moves to same-sex marriage, I think, are a manifestation of this. It's, quite, it's kind of an, an inverted diversity. We talk about diversity, uh, two men being married or two women being married. Of course, what that actually does is to ignore complementarity. It, it ignores real diversity, it, which is reflected in marriage in terms of a man and a woman who are different coming together and finding unity in their difference. When two men come together or when two women come together, it's a unity without difference. And um, that's a strange irony of uh, what is celebrated as diversity. Now, in terms of evangelicalism, the kind of tradition that we're, that we're part of and, and reflect, um, in our evangelicalism, we tended to stress personal salvation more than, more than the community aspects of, of Christianity. Uh, and um, even though evangelicalism has often been very concerned with social action, um, it's 
tends to emphasize the individual, the personal experience. So we've got, got my story of how I came to faith and what God means to me. We tend to talk about that more than the community aspects of, of the faith. And postmodernism, so evangelicalism was born within modernism, but postmodernism takes this kind of further and creates some paradoxes. So within postmodernism, there's lots of spiritual buzzwords that we use. We talk about community. We talk about connectedness. We talk about authenticity. We'd like to talk about what is real and what is genuine. But arguably, the personal experience, our personal experience becomes increasingly important. That's the thing that we emphasize again and again. So we tend to say, what am I getting from this? And that affects very much how we do church life. So uh, you know what it's like. You've been in a church meeting and we kind of do, do the review afterwards. What did I get from it? Um, what, how did it affect me? And the danger of that is it leads to a kind of a consumeristic fragmentation that becomes about me rather than about what God is doing amongst us. It also means that we are always looking for the innovative. We're looking for the new. How do I get that buzz again, something new that's happening? And that means that we can be very dismissive of what is routine. We don't even like the word routine. It's not a, it's not a popular word in the postmodern context. Um, I've just had some people, a couple of people leave our church, and uh, one of the reasons they gave was that they found it too predictable. And I think that's a very kind of postmodern uh, response because in a sense actually church life is predictable you gather together you praise jesus you listen to the word you pray you uh, break bread together uh, it's it's predictable in that in that sense um and uh the focus the postmodern focus upon me and looking for innovation actually undermines unity it does make unity difficult if i'm always looking for that fresh personal experience now true christianity maintains unity in diversity it encourages creativity but it's also comfortable with with rhythm rhythm's a better word probably than routine a rhythm of healthy spiritual life a rhythm where you do gather together at regular points to worship and break bread and listen to the word and not get bored by that even after 20 30 40 years it's what you do there's that sense of healthy rhythm of life of Christian living together. And so if we're to, in mission, connect with postmodern culture, we have to really emphasize diversity and we need to emphasize creativity, I think, in some ways, because those things connect with the postmodern worldview. But we also need to disciple against individualism. And that's a real challenge because. Postmoderns like to be very individualistic, don't like any sense of being told what to do or being uh, brought into a kind of a, a uniformity. But if we're to be faithful disciples, there has to be a unity amongst us, and that means we have to disciple against individualism. So in reaching Muslims, the challenge is to kind of bring diversity, and for postmoderns, the challenge is to bring unity. And those are two very different things. Uh, uh, but both very present in 21st century British society. 30 minutes, how are we doing? Right, let's uh, talk about worship. So Trinitarian theology affects how we think about family life, thinks, affects how we think about the church, affects how we think about wider society, affects how we think about the world, affects how we think about mission. Um, 
And of course, it must affect how we think about God. Probably should have started with that one. So a, a practical question for you, don't know if any of you are worship leaders, is to think about the kind of songs that you sing when you get together in your church context and to ask yourself the question, how many songs which you sing could just as well be sung by Unitarians, that's people who don't believe in God as Trinity, or by Orthodox Jews or even by Muslims? And you might be surprised if you did an exercise of looking at your songs at how many songs that would be true for. And there's a question we need to ask ourselves, which is, at what point does worship cease to be Christian worship and become simply Christians worshipping? And there is a distinction there, I think. So real worship is about God. And if God is a trinity, our worship in some way needs to be Trinitarian. If our worship isn't Trinitarian, there's a question as to whether it's actually genuinely Christian. And so I think we could ask the question as to whether even a undue focus on one person of the trinity is in some way distorted worship so one of the phrases that's buzzing around a lot at the moment in our church is is it's all about jesus and i think there's a question is that actually correct that it's all about jesus now obviously in a sense it is true it's about all about jesus and whenever we delight in one person of the trinity we're delighting in god as a whole because god is is one But at the same time, if we say it's all about Jesus, does that mean that potentially we're neglecting to worship the Father as we should and we're neglecting to know the presence of the Spirit as we should? If it's all about Jesus, are we actually in some way distorting real Christian worship? Now, true worship is to understand the way that God delights in himself and how worthy he is of our worship. God is ultimately worthy of our worship and God, in that sense worships himself he delights in himself and there's nothing um corrupt or perverse about that if, if we kind of glorify ourselves that always looks odd at least and it is it's reflects some kind of corruption but because god is utterly worthy utterly pure his delight in himself is utterly appropriate and so when we worship what we're actually doing is joining in with god in an activity he's already engaged in and uh, so when we worship it's not so much about what we do it's first and foremost something that god himself is doing and we're joining in with it's a bit like if you ever go if you go surfing um you don't create the wave you simply get in you try and get in harmony with the wave in order to catch the wave and ride it and real worship is something like that it's not that we're creating it's not that we're doing it but we're getting in line with what god is already doing now a long time ago probably best part of 15 years ago survivor music as it then was came up with a new strap line for uh, youth christian youth festivals like um soul survivor and uh, revive as we were running back in those days at Stony bubble week uh, and they labeled themselves as worship for a new generation and um i think that was a profoundly uh, uh misunderstood slogan worship for a new generation because of course worship isn't for us it's god's activity in which we engage christ is the true worshiper and our worship is a participation in his worship our worship is is not our act it's god's gift 
And that means it's not dependent upon how we feel, but it's a response to what God has given to us. Now, Matt Redman, who, of course, was uh, very involved with Soul Survivor and uh, Survivor Music and all that stuff, he wrote a song a number of years ago about being a, a gifted response. And um, that song expresses really what true worship is. A gifted response is where you respond with what you're given. So the best example I can think of is with my kids um, when they were younger, certainly weren't earning any money. Now, when it came to Christmas or birthdays, if they gave me a present, the only way they could give me a present was because I'd already given them some money. So the young child will be given some money by her parent and then will buy something. And often the thing that the child will buy uh, will be something that maybe the parent wouldn't have chosen themselves because a a five-year-old would choose something that a 30-year-old wouldn't necessarily choose. And they can only buy it because you've given them money to buy it. But then when your child comes and gives you the present, there's a delight about it. So as a dad, you don't look at this present your child has given you with your money and say, ah, what on earth have you done? What have you bought? And you say, that's amazing. That's lovely. Thank you so much. There's a, there's a delight. There's a mutual delight in it. The child is delighted because she has given something to her dad, which her dad is delighted in. Uh, the, the dad is delighted because the child has brought it. But the whole thing is only made possible because dad shelled out some money in the first place. That, that's, that's a gifted response. And our worship, true worship is like that. It's a gifted response. We we give what God has given to us, and he doesn't despise what we give. He delights in it. Um, and so true worship is a response to God's own worship. It's a participation through the Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father. And we worship because it's good and it does us good. We come to Almighty God. We're coming to power. We're led into fruitfulness. We enter into fellowship with God. We come into God's presence with, through thanksgiving and, uh, and we join with Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayers. He prays for us. Um, we uh, enter into this, this triune relationship of God as we worship. Um, and so a useful exercise to do actually would be to uh, look at your church song list and think, how does this does our, do the songs we sing help us to worship in a Trinitarian way? Now, you could get terribly legalistic about this, uh, which wouldn't help. But it is useful to think, uh, do our songs lead us into Trinitarian worship or do they lead us into distorted worship in some way? There's a book that came out 10 years ago by a guy called Robin Parry, who was from a vineyard background, and he, he examined 28 vineyard worship albums with 362 songs in them. And he found that only five of those songs were Trinitarian. That actually um, over 50% of the songs didn't even mention the Father or the Son, Jesus or the Spirit, but were kind of you, Lord, songs. And the point he makes in his book is that most of those songs could have been sung by anybody of any religious belief or practically none, kind of the you, Lord, songs. Now, we, we know in context when we sing you, Lord, who we're directing it to. But if the majority of our songs are you, Lord, songs rather than songs about the Father, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, then we're probably not feeding ourselves. We're probably not educating the church as we should. We're probably not 
really entering entering into Trinitarian worship as we should. And uh, we probably ought to try and adjust the kind of songs that we use and the kind of lyrics um, that we have. I think what happens is if <laughs> if our songs don't teach us about what real worship is, we tend to get confused when we pray or when we speak about God or we speak to God. And so we pray things like Father Jesus, which you're not going to get struck down for, but reflects a kind of confusion about the nature of the Trinity that it's not Father Jesus as one kind of blob, but there's the Father and there is Jesus and there is the Spirit who amazingly are one God, one Lord, but also amazingly distinct persons. It's not that the Father came and died on the cross, Jesus died on the cross. And so when we pray things like, Father, thank you for dying for me, again, you're not going to get struck down, but it displays a kind of confusion, which doesn't help us to enter into a fullness of worship as we should. Um, I think can limit our delight in God, our enjoyment of him, and even our sense of his presence. Well, we hope you enjoyed this Hangout and found it helpful. Just to remind you, you can find the full Hangout, including a Q&A with Matthew and the notes on everything that he had to say at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 20.